Sorry, Chris. Um, so Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12 through 30. Um, Chris had brought up a, an interesting question, a good question, um, as far as what what was it that Paul was was having a hard time deciding between. He was having this conflict um, in verse 23. Um, I'm hard-pressed between the two, the, the, the choices of you know, departing and going to be with Christ, which is what he wanted, or staying in the flesh and continuing to do the work that, that God had called him to do. And uh, I, I do just want to clarify, I made a, a comment, uh, an idea that, that maybe Paul could choose to willfully do things that would he, he would know lead to his own death. And I think Sarah said suicide by centurion. Um, I did not take that train of reasoning like all the way to the station. So I don't believe that Paul would have knowingly done something to end his own life uh, in, in such a way. Um, and so I just want to clarify that. I don't know exactly the conflict here, but what it does seem seem to me, and, and I think Bob made the, the, the comment that was clearest to me, was that he doesn't quite know what to want here. Whether he actually has the power to choose each one, I don't know that that's clear, but it, it seems like there's a conflict of, I, I don't know what I want here. I want to be with Christ, and I want to help you, and I want to go, but I want to stay, and I, I don't think it was a, I want to die, or I want to live. Um, and so, it it really is a matter of appreciating the change of perspective that Paul has, and that every Christian should have, with things like life and death. Paul was viewing death in a very different way than the average person views death. How does he describe it? In verse 21. Gain. Gain. Right? We live in a world where death, for many, is the ultimate evil. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. And we have to avoid it at all costs. Paul didn't treat it that way. He didn't look at it that way. I don't think he he like went chasing after it, throwing himself in front of a chariot, but he didn't view it as this ultimate evil that had to be avoided. He viewed the goal of, of being with Christ as if if death is what I have to endure in order to achieve that thing, then then so be it. And so let's talk about just real quick before we jump into chapter two. What are some ways in this section, 12 through 30, that Paul encourages us by his own example to change our perspective? So I just gave one. Our perspective on death needs to be different than the world's. What are some other perspectives, some worldview shifts that we need to have as Christians? Boyd. Well, I I think you see that uh, he does, he denies himself here like he is going to say for us to do as well. Yes. Yeah. He was willing to put his own self-interests aside for the interests of other others. And that is contrary to human nature. We are we are hardwired to to try and survive, to try and and succeed uh, to do what's best for us. I mean, that is the theory of evolution, isn't it? Dar- Darwinism is is survival of the fittest. Um, and Paul is saying, no, I, I'm not the most important person here. And I'm willing to go through, clearly, 
terrible, hard things, even death if necessary, to benefit other people. What about that section in verse uh, 12 through 18? There's a, a not typical perspective here. He rejoices in suffering to Okay, he does. He rejoices in suffering. He rejoices in the fact that he can experience pain and difficulty for the for the benefit of Christ. And we see that um, near the end of the chapter, for sure. Well, yeah. He's able to look and see that even those who are preaching the gospel, preaching the truth from a bad motive, he's able to say, I, you know, they're... It's not going to do them any good, but I rejoice that the gospel's preached one way or the other. Yeah. So he had, a, he had a very interesting perspective that it's all about gospel, it's all about Christ, and if that's being done even from people who, who would have nefarious intentions, I'm grateful that the truth is out there. Yeah, and that, that we talked about that. That's a, that's a hard one for me to fully kind of wrap my brain around. How could you still be glad if somebody is preaching from the wrong motives? I don't believe that Paul here is saying... They're not preaching the whole truth, and that's okay as long as some of the gospel is being... No. He's saying the motives of the presenter are not what they should be, but the presentation is valid and good, and so I'm going to rejoice in that. It's Again, it's a different mindset. It's not a, uh, a rivalry here, and we'll get into that in chapter 2. It's not a I'm a better presenter than he is, or I have more followers than he does, or I'm doing this in a better way than he is. At the end of the day, he's saying in verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so just the, the, the constant encouragement to look at a, at a circumstance or look at individuals, look at our lives in a way that is contrary to our natural self, contrary to the typical worldview, and say, I'm going to look at this the way that Christ would look at this. How do we view death? in the knowledge that Christ has defeated death? How do we view suffering in the knowledge that Christ was willing to suffer? How do we view the fact that the gospel is being preached even when people's motives aren't right, knowing that Christ was able to preach and he knew everyone's thoughts and motives as he did so? Um, So I would encourage us, as we consider other people, as we consider our work, as we consider our lives and our deaths, Um, that we view it from a perspective closer to his. And so in chapter 2, it's really uh, a matter of changing our perspective and how we treat people and how we get along with others. And so let's let's go ahead and read the first four verses of chapter 2. So if I could have a volunteer to read those first four verses. We'll get to you in a moment. Let's see Brad first. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Okay. Thank you. And that was the ESV, yep. right? Does someone have the like New American Standard or King, New King James or something like that? Bob, could you read that for us, the first four as well? 
Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And I think it's beneficial anytime we study a passage to look at multiple <laughs> translations, but I found that if really helpful, especially for this section. Um, almost every phrase, there are slight word differences um, I noticed specifically between the ESV and the New American Standard, but the the New King James, which is what I grew up reading, um, has has other word choices as well. And well, we'll dive into those in just a second. I want to ask this question first. So the ESV says, "So," as it begins verse one, uh, the New American Standard says, "Therefore," um, he's he's making a point here based on a previous point, or I think several previous points. What, what is he building off of in chapter 1 as he jumps into chapter 2? At least one thing um, is verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. So because you have been granted the privilege of suffering for Christ, therefore you need to work on that whole unity and etc. Yeah. Yeah. So verse, uh, you said verse 29, and I'm saying it for the sake of the recording here, um, suffering for Christ's sake. So let's talk about Christ's suffering, um, uh, starting here in chapter two and, and doing that. Therefore that you understand Christ was willing to do this. We're sharing in that suffering that ought to bring unity that ought to bring a, a, uh, combination of spirit here being joined in, in one mind, um, what was yours, Bob? The end of verse 2. Mine says being in full accord. Yours said unified in spirit? Intent on one, one purpose. Intent on one purpose. This is the New American Standard. Yeah, united in spirit. United in spirit. Okay, thank you. Um, the different ways of describing. This is not just learning to you know, brush things under the rug and get along with each other and kind of ignore each other's differences. But it's a, it's a, it's an idea of we are, we are on the same path with the same mission, the same purpose, and we are unified, um, in that. And we're unified through his suffering. What, what else do you think is, is he building off of in chapter one? I think he sees that he is going to go back there. They need him. And, uh, he is looking forward to being a part of what they are. He wants them to be unified uh, because uh, that's what he's going to be about. Okay, yeah. He he does have a desire to return to them. And so the idea of yeah, physically being brought back together again. Uh, I can see that. What else? I think it's interesting that he talks about comfort, consolation, we gain comfort by serving others. And when we are in difficult situations, uh, in fact, one of the things they often tell people, like myself, who struggle with uh, anxiety or depression or things like that, focus on serving other people. 
step outside of yourself and that way you don't focus on yourself and kind of wallow in your own self-pity, so to speak. Right. But this is that's a biblical concept that's always been there that that if you want to get through suffering, the hardship, the things that are coming that they're going to be partakers of there at Philippi, you need to do what Jesus did and focus on others and that will give you the power to get through these things because he says it several times if there's any comfort, any consolation, any fellowship. These are all words that are meant to engender um, hope, mm-hmm. confidence. So there, there is comfort to be had in suffering. How? By focusing on others and by serving others. Right. And what was Paul's circumstance as he was writing this letter? I mean, he had every reason to bemoan and complain about his current circumstance. And yet we don't see anywhere thus far, and we won't through the rest of the letter, where he's bringing the attention on himself and his distress. He is constantly communicating his desire that they be bettered. And so that's what he's trying to do. Um, And so he wants them um, to acknowledge his suffering, but... He makes he makes it of of no account. Like he doesn't really uh, bring too much attention to it, and that is a tendency of ours, isn't it? We want people to know when we're having a hard time, um, and yet Paul wants them to know. Look, I'm suffering, but he's already explained some benefits have actually come from this suffering. I want you to change your perspective about what's happening to me. And uh, and then in verse 29 and 30 of chapter one, he acknowledges that we are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Um, And this idea of we are sharing in suffering together and we're standing together and unified um, in that. Did I see a hand somewhere, Brad? Um, Verse 27 is kind of an echo from Ephesians. Yes. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Yes. Um, And let hope that I hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel. Um, And then he goes on to say, don't be afraid of the suffering. So it's this bearing up under suffering with hope and confidence and the absence of fear. And when that manifests itself, that you're not afraid of what they're going to do to you or that you have hope and without fear, that's going to be a sign. And they're going to go, oh, there's something different about these guys. Yes. Uh, it says that there's, that's a clear sign to them of their destruction and your salvation. So I think he's saying everybody needs to have hope without fear. And you all need to be united together in this when you're about to suffer. And that's going to be a huge sign and a witness to uh, those that are even trying to bring about your destruction. Right. Right. So your reference of, uh, it sounds similar to Ephesians, that was back in Ephesians 4 and verse 1, walk worthy of the calling in which you've been called, right? And I made the same note here because it's it's almost verbatim, but you're walking, uh, we need our manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And how do we demonstrate that? How do we live in such a way worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, and you pointed out, we stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, not frightened in anything by our opponents. I don't know. Does anyone else get military visions with that when, when we hear that read? I know Ephesians is the armor of God, but uh, you, you addressed it briefly, David, when, when you introduced uh, the book. But Philippi was... 
at one time primarily occupied by military veterans, right? Now, by the time this letter was written, this is probably a generation after. But you know, these people were familiar with military terms. Paul uses quite a bit of them in this letter, and so when he talks about striving side by side, like I, I envision soldiers. Um, and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. So you're facing off against an opponent, and they can see on your face that you are not afraid of them. And you're entering battle unified in that way. And so when he then gets into chapter two, he's saying, "Look, you're you're of the same mind. You're you're intent on one purpose." He says in verse two, "You are going into battle together, and everyone knows their their mission and objective, and everyone's on the same page, and we're fighting <laughs> alongside of each other." So Paul lists various rhetorical conditions in verse one, right? So he says in the ESV says, "If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy." So if these things exist. And I say rhetorical because, of course, they do. And Paul's writing it that way. Of course, these things exist. So, live in this way. Act in this way.、Um, why is it important to consider these things in light of Paul's call to unity in verse two? What, what is meant by these rhetorical conditions? So let's talk about that first one. Mine says encouragement in Christ. Some say consola- consolation, not constellation. That's totally different. Consolation in Christ. What, what does he mean by that? This this is almost like an outline or a summary of chapter one. All of these things are chapter ones. Therefore, if there's an encouragement in Christ. First few verses talks about that. The affection is in verse eight.、Hmm. Uh, love, participation, the,、um, the sympathy, almost the idea of whether I should go or stay. But for you, I have the, and those things are all in Christ. So I couldn't get them exactly in order through chapter one,、sure. but they're all in there. They're all there. I like that、so、very much. He's just giving them the rundown. Here's what I just said in chapter one. So if any of these things exist, which I kind of. Just made the case for.、Mm-hmm. Then, to complete that, would you guys need to be all united in those because of these things or in these things? Yeah, and again, it feels very much Ephesians, doesn't it? He lays out a case in the first three chapters of Ephesians and says, "Therefore, because these things are so, live and act this way." And he's doing it in a condensed version here, where he's laid out the case. Look, there is consolation in Christ. What does that word mean? And please don't say encouragement. <laughs> consoling has to do with、uh, peace. Okay, so consoling, right? Consolation. You're you're consoling someone. Does that word ring a bell? Have we heard that before in the New Testament? It's very random. So in Luke chapter two, and verse twenty-five. The Messiah is referred to as the consolation of Israel. He has come to console this this broken nation, these broken people. Right? Christ would be that.、Um, in Second Corinthians、uh, chapter one and verse five, it says, "For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, 
so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So look, we are going to suffer. We're called to do that, but Christ will console us. Christ will encourage us and 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 hold us and help us. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul says that God has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope of grace. So, is there any consolation in Christ? Is there any Well, of course there is. Is there any comfort from love or comfort of love, as some translations say? What what is that intended to get us to think of? Do we? Yeah, David. Uh, The version I'm looking at actually uses the word consolation of love. Okay. And so. It's a similar Those idea that you were were talking about with consolation. Yeah, yes, they're in Christ, but that's also a part of love. Correct. And at first, like when I read this, I tend to think of the the word console as well. That's that's what a parent does when, like Silas, getting out of the vehicle this morning, just trips all over the sidewalk, and we reach down and we console them. We see pain, we try to make it better. Um, the Greek word here, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it, but you're welcome to look it up. The idea behind it is not so much soothing sympathy, but more of strengthening and making strong. So the idea of, I see you are in distress and in pain, I'm going to infuse in you the strength to, to overcome this, Leanne. I think it also speaks to that human condition that when we are Silas falling down on the ground, we don't think, oh, well, my parents are comforting me. I should look for a way to comfort other people right now. Right? Right. Our human nature is not to look around when we're suffering. Right. To help. But that's what Jesus did. Yes. That's this, have you got any comfort from what Jesus did to you? Okay, well, even when you're suffering, do it for others. And that's really hard. Yes. And look, that is Second Corinthians chapter 1, right? That whole section. You know, the God of all comfort has given us comfort so that we can then in turn comfort others. It needs to be this pass through that it doesn't just stop with us, but that we keep our eyes open, keep our heads up and look out for for the needs of others. Did you have a? I'm sorry. Yeah, the the difficulties and the sufferings that that we face um, are sometimes, how do I describe this? The, the, The pictures and the symbolism uh, you know, of heaven, pearly gates, streets of gold, those are beautiful things, but we know that those are things that are meant to, they're, they're pictures, they're symbols, if you will. When we are hurting, and when we are, are suffering, or when there's even fear, pearly gates and streets of gold are enough. <laughs> it's only the knowledge that God, in His perfect love, His perfect Wisdom and in his perfect dedication to me has such an abiding love that he would go through everything that he went through in the form of man, as we'll talk about here in just a moment. And that if I was the only one who needed a savior, that Jesus loves me that much, that he would have come down and died just for me, that is power. Mm-hmm. That is the ability to anchor <coughs> us within the veil to withstand, you know, the, the storms, whatever analogies you want to put there. But when life is crashing down around us and it seems like everything is, is circling down the drain, 
the love, the knowledge of the love of God and what He's done and what He's willing to do and how far He will go to to fight for me and with me is the only thing that will sometimes get us through. If we have a superficial view of God and of eternity, it won't be enough. Right. But when we have Bible love, like Paul says, of course this is going to get you through. In fact, it will ultimately be the only thing that will get you through when the devil comes knocking. <laughs> uh, this is this is the only only thing that will anchor us. Yeah. And, and the love that is demonstrated, I mean, Christ went far beyond what what we would consider would have been fair right he was willing to give more so that we could benefit um and and obviously that's where paul's train of thought is going here he's going to then spell it out for us how much christ gave up and what he was willing to set aside um so that we could benefit from this and so the idea of of christ in his love not just soothing us, but strengthening us, making us brave and, and, and equipping us better to continue through, through the suffering, Chris. Yeah, so I'm trying to fit that back to chapter 1, and that helps me, because I was looking at verse 9, it talks about your love, that it may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may, and it goes on to give instruction. It goes on to say there's something, there's something coming out of that or that you need to be doing with that. Which yeah. Is, kind of helps fit with that idea that you're talking about. Yeah. So the next, if there's any participation or fellowship, um, mine says in the Spirit, there's a fellowship of the Spirit. Um, So this is Paul's third rhetorical statement. Paul knew and valued the fellowship of the Spirit, and every Christian should know what it is to have the fellowship of the Spirit the spirit so what is what is meant by that what does he mean i mean one one way of looking at it would be the fellowship that we have with others who are in christ through the spirit Uh, i mean just that you know there are others who can't who are marching with us in lockstep who have been where we have we are currently circling the drain you know they're like, okay, here's the line. I'm going to pull you out and and because I know where you've been. And it's because of that connection in Christ that we can depend on. That. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a couple of different ways that we can look at this. And I I think both, both are accurate. Is the idea of because of the Spirit, we have fellowship with each other, which is what it sounds like you were talking about. But I also think... It, it carries with it the idea that the Spirit has fellowship with us, right? So that we get to um, be a part of the the work of the Spirit. Um, in fact, that is what is promised in Acts chapter two. When we are baptized, we we get the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit works and 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 moves within us. And so the idea of because I am, am, am blessed with that when I give my life to Christ and you are and you are, then we are together having fellowship both with each other and with God. And, and so it's, again, very rhetorical. Does this thing exist? Is there actually fellowship in the Spirit? Of course there is. So if there's any affection and sympathy or mercy, some translations say, 
Let's talk about this one. Any thoughts on this one? Yeah. Sorry, I wanted to briefly mention about the, the fellowship of the Spirit, if I could. You know, they had spiritual gifts. There were spiritual gifts, things that we don't bear witness to. And so and when you look at the Old Testament and how the Spirit of God was the source of power, I think one of the things that Paul's tapping into here is the fellowship of the Spirit to them would conjure up ideas of, of power. Like you see in Acts 2, you see in the prophets in the Old Testament. So they are, not only are they thinking of their, you know, what they understood from the Old Testament, how the Spirit was the one who moved the prophets, the Spirit was the one who did all these things, but also He's the one working in us as we can see with different people who could speak in tongues, people who could, um, uh, offer interpretation, people who could pray through the Spirit. They saw a true manifestation in ways that, that we don't. And so that power, I think, would have been very, very much on their minds. And so when Paul talks about the fellowship of the Spirit, he's reminding them that there is power behind our suffering. Don't, don't forget that. There is strength. The Spirit is with us in these things. Yeah. And just because the Spirit has chosen to manifest itself in different ways in this time doesn't lessen its power at all. And I don't think that's what you were saying at all, but it, it, it's using a, a different method. Um, but there is still just as much power, and we want that spirit a part of us um, and, and, a, and a part of our group. And the idea of of providing affection and sympathy, again, it could go both ways. We provide it to each other as we see others suffering and in need, um, that we can be sympathetic and, and offer to them sympathy or mercy. But I also think that God demonstrates that to us. Um, God is not um, a cold-hearted deity who just sits up on a mountaintop and just watches us from afar. Oh, that's that's really a shame that that's going on. You know, I hope they figure that thing out. No, he he is among us and he is with us and he is um, is striving with us, and that provides us uh, a glimpse into his sympathy and mercies. One commentator said that this whole verse. Uh, to make his rhetorical point, he could have just as easily said, if water is wet, if fire is hot, if rocks are hard, therefore, like, obviously. He, he only spends a single verse to lay this out because it's not a difficult point to make. So because we know these things are real and true and powerful and meaningful in our lives, he says, complete my joy... By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And I I should have gone through these, but you all can look in your Bibles and see those points as well. So, what is the way that unity is to be achieved based on on verses 2 through 4? He doesn't simply say, now that you understand this, be unified. Get it done. What does he say? How should it be achieved? And I don't believe this is an exhaustive list, but it'll get us well on our way. How are we to be unified? Humility. Humility. It is considering myself as less important than the people I'm interacting with. That will go a long way in achieving unity. What else? But 
I have a note that from another study which so regard one another as more important than yourselves which is kind of like stepping up the game um, you're not supposed to love them the same way you love your neighbor just the same way you would love yourself you're supposed to love them better than you love yourself and I mean it ties in with the humility concept but just that idea that you're not just going to treat them the way you want to be treated but better than you would ever hope to treat yourself (coughs) and we would do that if we maintain the proper humility towards other people before he tells them to do that the second part of verse 3 what does he tell them not to do because these things will hinder unity don't be selfish don't be selfish Mine says, do nothing from rivalry. Uh, I think some translations say selfish ambition, right? Or conceit. What's another translation for that? Or is it all just kind of conceit? Empty conceit. Empty conceit. I like the emphasis of the extra word there, right? I am not part of this group so that I can be somehow lifted up above anyone else. Right? So teachers don't teach so that we can be considered more impressive or more important. Preachers don't do that. We, we don't give acts of service to others so that everyone can know about it and hear about it and, you know, really compliment us for the, the work that we're doing. We, that, that's not our goal. That's not our objective. In fact, if we follow the words of Christ, we, we're trying to do it in such a way so that it calls as little attention to us as possible. It's so that when they see our good works, they may glorify our Father in in heaven. Um, Yes, Leah? Um, I think this, um, in verse 2, where it says, uh, being in full accord and in one mind, that that makes me think back to Ephesians 4, when it talks about unity of the Spirit, and um, how we just talked about full participation in the Spirit. This is an idea that the unity we're seeking is not that we would all agree with Craig, but that we would all agree with God. Right. And so our... We're looking more and more like and able to have this um, unity only because we've all agreed that we're not important. Right. That we're all focusing on God and each other is more important. And the, this, all the unity is found in God's ideals, not yes. in any True. of ours. Yeah, and even Paul struggled with that. He's trying to communicate to the Corinthians. He's like, what are you doing separating yourselves by teachers? I, did, did I, was I crucified for you? He's like, that's not the point. And it's not this, this title that any of us intend to wear. It's that we are trying to, as teachers, point you to Christ. Um, and so it's not, uh, I do want, before we get too far, I want us to, to understand what he does not mean by unity. Because we do see this in, in other groups. We need to be careful that we don't see it in this group. But it is not the idea that we simply need to agree to disagree. And that's unity. Or we need to not try and push my truth on another's because their truth may be different than mine. This is not the idea of celebrating our differences and that's how we can be unified. We can see the world trying these tactics. How is it working for them? That's not unity to ignore differences or to, to overlook them. But when it comes to the foundational beliefs that we need to have in Jesus and in the gospel, it is... I'm not going to ignore the fact that there will be times where I don't see it the same way that you see it. And so is the answer to say, it's totally fine. That's fine. 
you do you, I'll do me, and we're all good. No, it's, then let's get down into this word and figure out what Christ wants us all to believe in. Um, we had an interesting uh, study with a group of, of students at uh, where I teach at Apprentice University, and we've been inviting them into our homes. And at the very last of this five-week study, one of the st- one of the students, not realizing where we attend, said, "So I've heard of groups. I think they're uh, like the Church of Christ group, where they don't use instruments, and it's always kind of confused me." And it wasn't really about what we were studying about, but it's like, okay, well, the door's open. Let's talk about it. In the 15 minutes that we had, we, we all kind of agreed, look, this is a big topic. Let's, let's take some time to study it, and we'll, we'll come back and, and do more of this and, and give it its proper due. But at the end of that, it really was, it is not about what I think about this particular topic. It's not about what my church thinks about this particular topic. I'm not interested in what the Church of Christ says about. That's right. I'm not interested about what the Baptist group says. I'm interested about what, what does the word say. And so let's take some time to open it up and read it. Um, and we get into a lot of we get into a lot of unnecessary conflict and struggle when we see it a certain way and others see it differently, and we spend too much time, I think, trying to make our point and and hold fast to our position instead of okay, let's let's get in here and see what Christ's point was. What was God's position? Um, so we're not supposed to do it with rivalry, conceit. We're supposed to do it humbly. And I believe that implied in all of this, and we certainly see it carried out through the rest of this section, which we clearly won't get through uh, before today is over, which is fine. But there's there's love directing all of this, right? Um So my brother-in-law, Grady Huggins, said about this particular section that love is the engine that propels us forward, but knowledge is the steering wheel. It gives us direction. So we can't simply say, well, I love love my brothers and my sisters, and so it's all going to be okay, and let's let's just let love propel us forward. No, we need to have the proper knowledge and understanding of God's position so that we can direct this engine of of love. Um, love, and I put that in quotes, has propelled many people down paths that they never should have started on. But knowledge, true knowledge of God, His truth and His purpose, His will for our lives, will ensure that our love for Him propels us in, in the right direction. I do want to backtrack just a bit. The idea of being in full accord and of one mind. Some translations say intent on the same purpose. And again, I think it goes back to this military idea. Um, No endeavor involving multiple people will truly succeed to its full potential unless we're all working towards the same objective. Anyone remember those dreaded group projects we would do in school? Mm-hmm. We're like, man, it'd just be so much easier if I could just do the thing myself and hand it in. But I'm stuck with three or four other people. Some of them are less motivated than others. Some of them are trying to do it 
and accomplish a thing different than mine. I'd like to get an A. They're content to at least get a D so that they can finish the class. We're not going to, you know, deliver that project to its full potential unless we're all actively trying to achieve the very same thing. And so our spiritual walk, it's not. I just gotta, I just gotta get barely into this thing. As long as I can like squeeze in, as the door to heaven is closing right there at the end, like I just need to barely make this. No, that that is not that is not the walk we're called to walk. That's not the conflict that we're engaged in. We are intent on the same purpose, which is to share in the victory of Christ, um, and to bring glory and praise to God. We see that two times in this letter, in chapter 1 and verse 11, and chapter 2 and verse 11, that uh, it is all to be done to the glory and praise of God. We can be tied together and still not be working toward the same goal. Right. Yeah, a team of horses, that only works if they're trained to be doing the same thing. Right. You can take two cats and tie them together by the tail. They're united, but that's not unity. Right, right. And let's just take his word for it. Let's not try that out. I haven't tried it either, but no. I can imagine. Well, I can imagine. And so really, when we look out not only for our own interests, but the interests of others, if I consider you above myself... And you consider me above yourself. And we've been trying to teach this to our kids, right? When you push and push and push and try to insist that you get all the best Lego, what's going to end up happening is no one's really going to want to play with you because you're taking it all. But if you all are looking out for each other and you find a cool piece and offer it to Avery so that she can benefit, and she finds something that you think that she, you might enjoy, suddenly you're playing together, and it's much, much better than if we just insist on our own way. We have a community when everyone is looking up. We're looking for opportunities to help instead of looking in. Um, and again, it goes back to, to what you said. The easiest way to get discouraged, and I, you know, I deal with it as well, is to think about me. And instead, the easiest way to become encouraged is to look out and see the needs, but also see the victories that other people are experiencing. Paul was in prison and seems to be just bursting open with joy. It's hard for us to to, to fathom. So, we did four verses, which is fine. There's an old saying that uh, uh, conceit is an attitude that makes everybody else sick except the person who has it. That's right. That's right. And uh, is that really is that really truly what we want? Um, selfishness is actually going to end up stealing from you the thing that you're trying to get in in the long run. <laughs> So I do want to point this out as we, uh, we've just got a few more minutes and as we jump into starting in verse 5 on Wednesday, rather than quoting scripture to this primary Gentile church, Paul illustrates the idea of selflessly advancing the gospel throughout this letter by using his and other personal examples. So in Ephesians, he quoted scripture at least a couple of times. Um, depending on his audience, he changed his approach. Throughout the book of Philippians, 
he uses people. He uses personal examples, himself included, to try and illustrate these points. So he did this back in chapter 1, and we talked about this, verses 12 through 26. He uses himself as an example so that we can appreciate um, how we can and, and are called to rejoice in trial and persecution. He's getting ready to, here in verse 5 of chapter 2, to use Jesus as the ultimate example of enduring humility and death, of um, of being willing to obey to the very ultimate extent. And that's an example that we are called to follow. He, he uses Timothy later on in this chapter as an example of someone who's, who's working with steadfast and genuine concern. He speaks of Epaphroditus uh, later on in chapter 2, someone who was willing to nearly give up everything, um, endanger his own health and life to help propel the gospel. And then he uses himself again in chapter 3 to make the point that we need to ignore past worldly accomplishments and failures. Don't keep looking back but instead look forward. And he uses his own his own life and career, um, his failures and his accomplishments, and says they're not important anymore. And so look forward. And so just kind of, it's, it's, not, it's not a perfect outline of the book. He doesn't do it in every chapter. He uses three in one chapter, in one chapter, chapter two. But I want us to kind of, to understand, he's dropping Jesus here, but it's kind of, it's kind of his mode through this letter. And so, starting in verse 5, let's go ahead and at least read this section. Um, do we have a volunteer for 5 through 11? Sarah, I'll call on you. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every name will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, thank you. Um, one commentator wrote that some regard this section as a hymn of the early church just because of the, the poetic way that it's written. Um, something that Paul incorporated. Um, some commentators go so far as to suggest stanza and verse arrangements for the hymn. Uh, this is possible, but it's not necessarily, uh, uh, it's not a necessary conclusion. Either way, it is very visual and poetic, and, and it should invoke in us emotion as a hymn would as we read through this and, and consider what Christ was willing to give up. So what can we understand about Christ's decision to empty himself or make himself nothing? What passages help us to understand what is meant here? Because there are, there are, understandably, some, some misunderstandings about what it meant, what it means. Well, Isaiah 53, towards the end, talks about the suffering servant who will pour out, pour out his soul unto death. Uh, Jesus emptied himself of himself 
I mean, he emptied himself of his own ego, even though he had every right to it. He emptied himself of himself, and especially in a place like Philippi, where there's a very, uh, like you said, uh, Roman garrisons retired. These are people who come from the Greco-Roman concept of, if you've got glory, you show it. Mm-hmm. Jesus emptied himself of himself. Yeah. And what a crazy and incredible concept that is. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about that more on Wednesday for sure, that... He gave up his rights. He gave up his ego. He gave up the things that he was due, um, but was willing to put those things aside for for our benefit. Um, so over the next two classes, so this coming Wednesday and Sunday, we'll be here in chapter two. And so whether we get through every section as we hoped we will, as long as by the end of next Sunday we get through chapter two, uh, we're on track. So thank you all. We'll see you on Wednesday.